and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Monica Marvelous. Hey, Monica, how's it going? It's, it's good, Mav. It's week eight over here in school time, which means it's almost finals, which means yeah, you so are you're lucky that you have me. I am barely here. Yeah. <laughs> you have quarters at your school, right? So like you yes, have... Yes, we do. Which, by the way, is insane, and I don't understand why anybody actually would ever do that. But you, so you've got finals, however, how often every ten weeks or something like that? Every ten weeks, yeah. So that is yeah. roughly fifty pages of writing every ten weeks. My, again, we're we're lucky I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you you said you said last week. I lose track when with podcast time travel and everything. I think you said last week that you're, you hadn't been on a while for a while and you were looking forward to being on more. So now you're, now you're on or for a topic, you know, tons about, right. This is going to be a great topic that you, for you this week, I assume. Oh no, I, I am qualified because it fit my schedule and I said I would play dumb guy, <laughs> <laughs> which is honestly what I did last week. Right. I just fielded questions at our guests. So happy to do it again. Because I am truly, truly happy to be back and happy to be here, Beth. I love when you're here and you know that. Oh, anyway, I am excited about this topic. So I never actually made a show out of it, but I, I did mention about a month ago, a month and a half ago, at some point, I went to Bowling Green University for a conference on Spider-Man. It was a lot of fun. I, I, we ended up not doing, I ended up not doing an episode for it because... Literally, like the next week, I went to uh, Cleveland for a conference on Superman, and it seemed weird to do two conference shows back to back. So we did the conference on Superman, but I also did this this one on Spider-Man the week before that. And while I was there, I met Trinity Velez Justo, who was another guest at the conference, and she did a presentation all about how music and theme were used in the movie, well, I guess in both Spider-Verse movies, I was going to say into, into the Spider-Verse, but I believe it's in both Spider-Verse movies. And I don't know why I'm talking about this in like, you know, trying in vague terms. Trinity's here, so she can just explain it herself. So I want to welcome to the show for the first time, Trinity. Hey, Trinity. Hey, how's it going? All right. <laughs> Ridiculous. For, for the, I'm going to say for the listeners, if there was an odd edit there, we just had half an hour worth of technical difficulties. So hopefully this show is recording. That would be great. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we're going to have a really weird, but really fun conversation that, you know, will just be for us. Let's see. Maybe other people will hear it. <laughs> but thank you for agreeing to do this. And thank you for sticking with us. And that said, so I'll ask you to explain more of what, what I was just talking about. Because to the best of my ability, I try to very poorly explain what it is you do. But before we do that, I just want to make sure I, I, I can. Our other guest, so returning to the show, one of our, what did we decide to call him, Monica, off air? Our regular, not honorary regular. Yeah. <laughs> honorary oh, regular recurring Recur guest star, I think, is the the role that you get on television when they when they bump up your billing ah. and you get a little bit more money. So <laughs> we don't pay you. Sorry. Uh, so hey Marcel. Hi. It's it's worth it for the exposure. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> now I feel bad. 
<laughs> I like I like honorary guest star. That's like a thing. So when I tell people like I'm on, you're like honorary guest star. I'm like I like your CV. I'm good. <laughs> Fair yeah, I might. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, Marcel, you were on the show the last time we talked about scores and soundtracks to films, which yeah. I didn't realize at first because. I really thought we'd done more shows on soundtracks than we have, but we we haven't. I mean, it comes up a lot. Every time we talk about a movie, we do talk about, you know, about sound a little bit, but I thought we'd devote more episodes to it. And then when I saw Trinity talk at the Spider-Man conference, I thought, oh, that, that should just be an episode. And in fact, a friend of the show, Matt Brake, um, he basically said, you should just have her on the show. And I'm like, yeah, she's clearly a show, so. Hey, Trinity. Welcome to being our topic for the week. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Appreciate that. In <laughs> so, as much as I butchered what we're talking about, just you want to fill the audience in on what exactly it is. Yeah, sure. So like, what do I do? Man, I do a plethora of things, <laughs> but in the realm of academia. OK, so we're going to we're going to go into like a macro to micro scale. So the macro scale is looking at how does media music influence our perceptions of marginalized groups, looking at um, especially like specifically black and brown groups. Uh, I'm interested in this idea of how uh, black stories are being told by white voices and choices. So not just the composers, but everyone who is involved in the process of what kind of music or what music is being used to represent black and brown characters. And so then diving even further, specifically within my current research, specifically for my dissertation, is looking at the role and function of hip hop in American superhero films. So I'm looking at specifically like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I've also done some deep dives into Black Panther and Wakanda Forever. But the paper that you had me speak about was specifically on what's up danger and how it was used and how did it function in into the Spider-Verse. So I'm basically pitching this phrase of sonic assimilation, which is the musical or sonic representation of a BIPOC character assimilating to an embracing culture or embracing, quote unquote, dominant culture. So in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the soundtrack, so there is a differentiation between soundtrack and score, and not many mm -hmm. people know, but the soundtrack is either the uh, a compilation of licensed songs, so word, uh, songs, pieces of music that have lyrics. So that's the other pet peeve that I have. Don't come to me and say, hey, that's a great song, and it's all orchestral music or instrumental music. That is not a song. A song <laughs> is sung. It has lyrics. So, <laughs> so it's not a song. Refer to it as a piece of music. So anyway. Okay. So soundtracks are often a compilation of these licensed songs or of just songs in general, even if it's original songs. The score is all the underscore, right? All of the instrumental music that is in the film and oftentimes the, the background music, right? Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is that then we have the square versus rectangle scenario where like you can have the score be part of the soundtrack album, which is marketed, but you will never have the soundtrack within the original score as it is marketed as an album. Does that make sense? You are already one of my favorite people. 
Because you just broke down stuff that I've known forever, but like you just made it official, so I'm just going on a record. Oh, well, great. One of my favorites. So, so then now. do I get like an honorary guest period title just from you, just from you, Marcel? You know, just yes. send, send me an yes, engraved pen. Great, thanks. Okay, so yeah, so anyway, the cool thing about the soundtrack, well, cool thing in some ways and other ways might be a little problematic. But anyway, we have the soundtrack for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It was made specifically for the film and was marketed as like, you know, we are going to be diverse and representative of all these different cultures because we're incorporating like Afro-blackness or Afro-blackness, sorry, Afro-Puerto Rican-ness. Mm. Uh, so afro Ricanness, and And I already have a problem with that because the, there's only one song in the entire soundtrack that is semi-Latin representative and we'll get into that in another another day. But anyway, point is you have this soundtrack that is representative of Miles Morales' ethnic and cultural mm-hmm. roots. Then you have the score and the score uh, goes through this uh, lineage of whiteness, basically. Uh, it's, it's derived off of European um, uh, methods or approaches, techniques, cl- uh, compositional uh, approaches uh, from military music in the 17th century. So, you know, you hear Spider-Man, right? That's actually derived from Superman. the horn call, which was used right. in wait, military. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. Superman. Okay. I was like, wait, Superman. No, no, I literally was it. like, oh, wait, I, 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 for a moment, I was like, wow, are those two songs is that close? And I'm like, no. That's not. <laughs> so, well, no, well, I mean, it's going to. Well, I noticed, but I didn't want to break the flow. I think it's going to come up later. You know, just the entire the entire reason I wanted to do this episode is, and you know, you're sort of getting getting into it now, Trinity. I think that one of the things that I think makes this interesting is we we recognize Superman as much by the as we do by the by the red and blue suit, right? And Spider Man is, you know. Uh, da, 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 da. You know, like, like I think those scores become right. iconic of the character in as much as the funny pajama. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. And and we will get more into that as well. You know, thinking about like the psychology uh, behind leitmotifs and how they create specific associations. And then we, you know, we tie those associations to how we perceive these characters, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then we'll get, again, we'll get into that. But ultimately, what I'm arguing is that Miles Morales in the film of Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse in his actualization scene, the scene where he where he develops his confidence and becomes his version of Spider-Man, he goes through a process of what I argue to be sonic assimilation, where we have this relationship between the soundtrack and the score. As he develops confidence, the score overrides the soundtrack, excuse me, and becomes the prominent sonic layer when he becomes his version. And so it's like, what is implied here is that in order for Miles Morales to be recognized as an American superhero, he must abandon his ethnic roots and ascend to a place of whiteness. And so, yeah, anyway, that's basically the big argument of this, of my paper and which is basically the crux of my dissertation and, you know, will further be developed. Like I'm looking at films like again, like Black Panther or whatnot, but I'm also looking at like, um, Lupin, the Netflix mm-hmm. series, with this integration of Nigerian hip hop with like 
Eurocentric classical score and how these are depictions of class and like, eh, anyway, going into all of these different things, but I'm just kind of rambling at this <laughs> point. But ultimately, that's that's what my research is about, is just looking at these relationships between the score and the soundtrack and how specific timbres and and for those who are unfamiliar with what a timbre is or what timbre period is it's it's the quality of a sound so as a sound is manipulated it changes quality so for example if i'm just speaking now versus if i added reverb or delay or phasing i am changing the timbre of my voice and i my research really focuses on how these manipulations affect how we perceive and interpret that sound source, especially narratively. So yeah, anyway, all right, I'm gonna stop talking now. <laughs> did that did any of that make sense? To me, but I saw the real talk. <laughs> that was so Monica was doing again, listeners of the show, regular listeners of the show probably heard us talk about the behind the scenes, the the dumb guy aspect. So that's what Monica showed up for today. And I, so I'm not just insert, in, insulting her. How'd it go, Monica? <laughs> We're there. We're, uh, I am. I am here to feed you uh, dumb questions. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's no such thing as dumb questions. You're just acting as the average listener. Yeah. See, and there is there is a yes. lot of value yeah. in that. You know, like. I could be writing scores all day, but I need to have my husband, who's an average listener, to come in and say, this sounds like crap. <laughs> and I'll say, OK, why? And he's like, because it doesn't make sense here. And I'm like, fantastic. Thank you, because you are my target audience, <laughs> the average person. So thank you. We value here. <laughs> <laughs> we value average here. But you know what? Yeah. We don't want review. average ratings. Give us, give us a five star review. <laughs> <laughs> but Trinity, I would love to hear more specifically because you've you've really gotten me thinking about the. Luckily, we have a lot more representation within our superhero mm -hmm. media recently. But in what ways can you talk to me about characters that aren't Spider Man? Something like the. I loved the new Luke Cage Netflix series, right? Like you, you mentioned that you are also working on a, a project about Black Panther. What, what are the ways in which this assimilation is also functioning across characters or treating this as a, a genre wide phenomenon? That That's you a great noticing? question. See, average. It's great. Um, it, it, but what I'm saying is that it's not average, right? Anyway. So this idea of assimilation. So I'm going to give the example again. Like I, I had mentioned Lupin. I don't know if any of you have seen Lupin. It's a French series, but it's based off of the, what would you say? Not fairy tale, but like the fictional novel on Lupin. There's also a Studio Ghibli film, Lupin the Third, that focuses on the yeah. Master Thief, right? And so in this show, you have a Frenchman of... Nigerian roots who learned the ways of Lupin to become a master thief and basically, you know, fighting against the uh, the jaws slash grasp of uh, white um, white capitalism. But anyway, it's interesting to hear how you have these hip hop influences, 
but intertwining with this Eurocentric Western score soundscape. And it really helps to depict these different, the class struggle that he is living with on a daily basis, right? I mean, like, and, and it's, it's not just that, like, so, okay, I'm going to rewind a little bit. So there have been cognitive studies that have shown that people perceive genres or perceive uh, people who listen to specific genres as carrying specific traits. So for those who listen to classical or jazz or opera, they tend to carry traits of high education, higher class, you know, safe, calm, whatever, like, bull. And then you have, like, rap and hip-hop, and they carry these connotations of misogyny and violence and low socioeconomic class and poor education. And so I'm interested to see, or not just to see, but to, to consider and to investigate how these genres of music are being used to depict these black and brown characters. So like, for example, in Black Panther, why is it that the antagonist is being underscored with a quote-unquote 808 beat slash hip-hop soundscape? And Ludwig Göransson, the composer for Black Panther, he had said that, oh, well, you know, because he's in Oakland, that's why I ended up using hip-hop. But and at the same time, well, what is Oakland? And it's, it's like, okay, well, only, low socioeconomic. Where only communicate through hip-hop. <laughs> like in, Cap- like right. in the Marvels. <laughs> which, which, I've which seen the Marvels. I, would- I don't know if anybody else has. It's a joke from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw the Marvels. I'd, I'd love to ask, because you are bringing up this really great point of, I think about somebody like Beyonce, who is really positioning herself as a Southern Black hip-hop artist. And, and the ways that that geography is very different from somebody like a Cardi who is Cardi B, who is positioning herself as mm. a like New York hip hop artist. And, and the ways that maybe the geography itself within the genre may or may not be present alongside our perceptions of something like, or is this music actually deriving from Oakland to be representational of And it's and it's Oakland. interesting too because like there are many ways that you can represent a place or a space, right? And what had bothered me was that in one of the final scenes of Black Panther where T'Challa returns to Oakland with his sister to show her of the the old building that Killmonger used to live in that they're converting into an outreach center. Right. The beginning of that scene, you hear hip hop and it's not like just cool form hip hop. It's like if you listen close to the lyrics, it's talking about like there are violent lyrics and, you know, talking about oppression and I mean, which is characteristic of the original hip hop anyway. But it's just interesting that you have this soundscape representing kids who are playing basketball. And the first thing that these kids say uh, whenever T'Challa uh, exposes his spaceship, the quote-unquote spaceship Bugatti, as they um, phrased it, 
the first thing they say is, man, this looks great. Let's strip it apart and mm-hmm. uh, sell it for parts. And while that may be realistic to a degree, why do you need to use violent lyric hip hop to represent these characters? Like, could you not choose some other form of hip hop? And especially when it's coinciding with dialogue that is criminalistic, are you not just perpetuating the criminalistic stereotypes that are associated with hip hop? And and so it's just again the the argument some are some people have argued it's like well you know you're we're trying to show the kind of hard upbringing that these folks have been going through in Oakland and it's like sure but what is an outreach center really going to do so i had this discussion with my sister in the past and she was talking to a bunch of other like bipoc entrepreneurs who are also thinking about how do we bring in marginalized children into becoming more aware or self-reliant what was it like like educating them and whether it's budgeting or uh, survival skills or like all these kinds of different essential needs that oftentimes these communities do not have access to or resources to learn what what she was saying was that all of her friends, entrepreneurial friends, were like, you know, one of the biggest things that pisses me off is when somebody says, oh, I'm going to do an outreach center. Like, that's the whitest thing you could possibly do because it doesn't actually help anybody, you know, because what do you do? You're going to try and help the kids. But the moment that they get home, these parents, they're not going to support them because they don't mm. see the value in it. So what you need to do is you need to reach out to the parents, not the kids. And so is an outreach center going to help them with that? Or are you going to put together like, you know, parent, like adult programming to to help educate them in order to create a, a supportive environment at home that enriches their education and means for budgeting survival skills plus blah, 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 blah. So anyway, it, it's just interesting to me, like the way that they approach the end of Black Panther, especially like when Killmonger dies. And you hear a major chord and it's like, well, why is it? Why are we celebrating that Killmonger is dead after he just said like, <laughs> like, OK, I get it. Pan-Africanism isn't always the greatest. Well, Pan-Africanism in a, the, the violent sense is not celebrated. I get that. Killmonger's. He had a. A mental space or mental state that made sense like i get why you're angry i get why you want to you know uh what am i thinking of you want to support or not just support but to improve you know the the black american existence or just black existence on this planet i understand why you're angry yeah, it sucks that you want to be violent about it. That's not really going to help anyone. But at the end of the day, like his his views were mm-hmm. valid, right? His struggles, his challenges, completely valid. And at the end, we're celebrating that he's dead when it's like, oh, so yeah, let's let's help fix his problem with just an outreach center. And it's like, no, that doesn't that doesn't help anybody. And so 
anyway, again, kind of rambling here, but it's just interesting to see and to hear how they're using music to depict these different communities and how their relationship. So like, for example, in that ending scene, you have this hip hop, like misogynistic, violent hip hop being representative of these kids as they're playing basketball. Here comes T'Challa with his spaceship and all you hear is a Western centric score with some African elements come in to quote unquote, save the day. Could you not argue that sonically what's happening here is, Hey, here comes the white savior. Who's going to save the day by giving you an outreach center, ultimately saying that you're still doomed. Like <laughs> we're not really going to help your existence. Cause we're not willing to do more than just give you an outreach center. Anyway, maybe that's a little far fetched, but that's, I- that's what I'm interpreting by interpreting by listening to the music and how it's being used to represent these characters. I don't think it is too far-fetched in the, we'll lay my cards on the table. I've been reading a lot of Fred Moten (laughs) recently and thinking about the, the position of the, the historic existence of the black body of the free black body Mm -hmm. as inherently criminal. And, and the idea that the thing that needs to be fixed is an inherent criminality of like people with free time, which is what an outreach center is, mm-hmm. right? It's like the after school activities so that you go, don't mm-hmm. go do crimes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and the problematic nature of assuming that that is what kids will get up to sort of of their own desire or volition or that you need to prevent criminality rather than understanding the institutional historic structures that make criminality like the fact of existence for the for the black body that that is a a particularly interesting um thought to me but i i'm so interested and would love to hear you speak more on especially this history that comes from hip-hop as being a form of black resistance that is then being co-opted into no longer it, it's sort of the rejection of hip hop as then the assimilation mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. That's a great question yeah, too. Well, oh, did so you want to say I something, Matt? One of the things that becomes interesting there is because you're I I think that with with youth culture parallel to or agnostic to uh, black black racial culture. That is to say, youth culture is also a demonized subset of uh, majority culture. So Americana tends to look at the unavoidable state of just being young as something that should be criminalized. We, We don't just have outreach centers in the hood. You know, we've always, well, we've got to do something to stop the juvenile delinquent, right? We've got to do something because if kids are not kept busy and prepared to be adults at all times, well, they will rise up and overcome us and they're younger and stronger than we are. And that's dangerous. So that is, that is the fear of youth that American culture has had basically since we invented teenagers in the 20th century, in the early 20th century. And I think that, and yes, we did invent teenagers. It's not a, not a naturally occurring thing. We just decided to do that when we, with industrialization, it's a long story. But anyway, I think this is compounded by the fear of blackness. It's compounded, probably if you went far enough, by the fear of queerness. Not so much in that movie, but just in general. 
So what I so mm-hmm. I think that you end up with hip hop as an art form is an art. I mean, even though it's not new anymore, right? Hip hop is been around as long as I have, and I'm an old man now. <laughs> but hip hop is seen as a youth genre and it's seen as a black genre, and therefore is inherently dangerous. So if you paint a character, Killmonger, by associating him with the dangerous sounding music that he becomes a dangerous individual. Hmm. And I can, I, that definitely makes sense. Or the kids. Um, Killmonger are the, ki- again, or the kids. Like are, with, right, the, the kids of Oakland. Yeah. Right, right, right. And again, like you make a great point and, and it ties again, very well with the history of hip hop and why hip hop exists. It became a symbol of youth later on when, large uh, when like old white men became in charge of these recording studios and were like oh man this is making a lot of money the number one consumer of hip-hop is white male youth which is which is interesting because it's it's the quote-unquote rebellious sound right it's it was the what was it it's the foxtrot cakewalk of the 19 well late 1970s and 1980s you know and even before that, it's the waltz. It's the waltz of the 1980s, right? right? So, and what is interesting is that now you're seeing that in some of these white circles, hip hop is being manipulated to be representative of higher class now because it's the in and it's especially politically. I mean, have you noticed that more political campaigns are incorporating hip hop? And one, to, of course, appeal to the youth, but two, to seem youthful and hip and in the now and totally contemporary and therefore, you know, uh, focusing and paying attention to the youth's troubles and issues and whatever, whatever. So it's used as a mechanism, right, for persuasion. And again, we'll get to that in a moment about this idea of, of the psychology between or the psychology behind the use of specific music, especially light motifs. But anyway, so like the the history of hip hop, since you were you were asking, is starting in the 1970s, late 1970s, and getting more into the 1980s and 90s. What had occurred was that these black and brown communities were being oppressed socioeconomically as well as many other ways. But due to the limitation of resources in schools and in their communities, they had they didn't really have access to musical instruments. So what they ended up finding were these, quote unquote, cheap forms of technology called turntables. And they use their voice and they use other forms of expression. Hence why hip hop is not just music. It is a complete culture when incorporating graffiti and fashion and dance. And it was during the the Reagan era where, again, they were completely oppressed from, you know, monetary gain and acceptance within, you know, class circles and or higher class circles, education, et cetera, et cetera. So hip hop was their form of expressing, I say there, but black and brown communities, it was their form of expressing oppression in all of these different avenues. Now, the thing that I had an issue with with Spider-Man It's the Spider-Verse is that in an interview, Daniel Pemberton was like, oh, man, like, 
I never thought that the turntable was an instrument until I heard this white DJ a few years ago really using a turntable as an instrument. Like, I always thought that it was just meant to make beats. But no, the way he used it, it was really an instrument. And then that's when I realized I could use it even more as an instrument by recording my orchestra and then record scratching it back into the score. And I'm just a genius. And I'm like... Dude, it's been an instrument since the very beginning. Like, <laughs> like way to disrespect the entire like community. And oh man, and there was that one guy at the conference. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it was just like that was interesting. But anyway, was, um, well, I do want to take a little bit into into talking more about like how the soundtracks made. But before that, I just you you're quoting Pemberton. This is come. Or I think I've mentioned it on the show before. I'm not sure. Has, have you seen, has anybody ever seen the movie 24 Hour Party People? It is a documentary about the rise of punk and new wave music, alternative music, and it, 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 it's it's a it, it's a very good documentary. And what's fascinating about it is it primarily takes place in England. A lot of it follows the Sex Pistols. It follows that entire culture, that punk culture, right? So there's a point in the film where they go to a club, a random club in the late 70s, and they talk about the amazingness of this moment because they recognize that this is the first time that anybody has ever praised the DJ as a musician. It's like the crowd right there. They're not clapping for the, for the singer. They're not applauding the, the musicians on the album. They're applauding the DJ, they're acknowledging the artistry of, of, you know, of the mix. And this is a fascinating thing that never happened before. And I was like, eh. I mean, I think that that's sort of part of the, the capitalism of music, right? Like it, it, if music is primarily consumed, by you know the largest purchasing group in America is going to be young white males, so that's where you legitimize it. That's why, like we we measure being able to sell anything by can we sell to that group, young straight white males, age sixteen through sixteen to twenty five. Like that's those are the important people, and everybody else is just sort of little, right? So. As we record this, you know, we are the week after the film The Marvels opened, and it was an abysmal failure. Marvel's worst opening ever. It made $110 million that weekend, which is really low. And it is really low for Marvel. It's also the number 27 movie of the, of the, of the, of the year so far already. It is the, like, it's right, going to be right. one you. of the top 10 movies of the year because Marvel's failures are still the biggest movies in America. <laughs> and so there's a, there's a contextual thing there. Now, right. this movie, it, by the way, I love Marvels, but it is, it's not, and it's not my favorite movie. I'm not going to pretend it's my favorite movie. No, but almost no Marvel movies. In fact, no, not almost. No Marvel movies are my favorite movies. They're movies that I enjoy, but it, it, it is poorly edited and not the best paced. And it is crazy amounts of fun. If I were a 15 euro Pakistani girl, this would, this would be my favorite movie ever. It is brilliant. It is. Um, Mav, you are two out of those three things. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But, it, but, it, but it, it doesn't. I mean, it is. 
not targeted at the young white male demographic. Now, the problem is, if you actually look at the at the demos of who went to see it, that's who mostly went to see it because it was marketed poorly. So men, for instance, made up something like 70 percent or 75 percent of the opening weekend audience for the Marvels, which is odd for a movie about three female leads, you know, so not that you wanted to be 75 percent women, like ideally 50 percent would be great, but they didn't get that. Like so. So that so that is a, that is a problem, but it still did fine. And the but the the mark of fineness is that they're looking for is how did it do with our primary audience of 16 year old white men? And, you know, not as well as they wanted. <laughs> I thank you for saying a lot of that, Mav, because, well, like you, I also saw the Marvels and I think I would have seen the Marvels anyway. I I went with my girlfriend because my girlfriend had interest as well and we enjoyed it. You know, I'm, I actually want to echo a lot of your sentiments about that movie. We enjoyed this movie. Was it the best movie? No. Was it fun? Yeah. And honestly, when I came out of it and was talking with people about enjoying it, one of my single favorite things was their usage of music. You know, yes. this is a movie that had a culture. Hold on. Spoilers for the Marvels. Because if you haven't seen it, have either of you seen it? Turn into your Monica. I think you have spoiled for me already the thing that you were going to yes. spoil. So go, go for yes. it. It's, yes. Go ahead, Mar- Marcel. <laughs> I'm, it doesn't well, really I, affect the plot. That that much, I mean, that, but, yes. that particular thing. It doesn't affect the plot. I mean, but that was the thing that I was most enthused when I, I, I thought it was lovely the way they incorporated music into that narrative. And but you're right. I mean, it wasn't that movie isn't that isn't or, made with or 50 year old black guys, guys in mind. It's not for and me it either. Be, right? Why but, but, would it be? But I loved it. Yeah, I, yeah, so right, the right. Right. Yeah. The moment you're talking about, they, they go oh. to an alien planet and that alien planet communicates only in song. And they to the point where. They they seem to be able to understand English, but only if it's sung. And it's sort of an adorable mm-hmm. and you know it, it's an adorable thing. And then except for the <laughs> prince of the, the, the prince of the land, the, the ruler can understand can understand them and Ms. Marvel was like, wait, how how can he understand us? And Captain Marvel says he's bilingual. He's, yeah. That's the that's the only explanation you get. And it's so adorable. <laughs> he can understand he's bilingual, yeah. so he can understand spoken to, spoken word, whereas great. all of his people you have to sing or they're just like, huh? <laughs> and it And I just I just immediately made me think of you know, this is really funny. It made me think of the people who had took exception to the the recent episode of Star Trek. The no, um, no not Discovery. The, the I've never watched it. I'm just that much of a thank geek. you. I don't know why. It's totally <laughs> I've now, literally but, never seen the show. Yeah. Well, but thanks. I just so for whatever reason I just locked up on that. But they did a musical episode, and it, a lot of the fandom did mm-hmm. enjoy it and liked it. I thought it was great. You know, I thought it was right where it needed to be. But it was funny how there were certain people who came out and just didn't like this thing. And it, it, there were people who viewed the episode as not as not succeeding because, oh, everybody didn't just universally love it. Well, you know, like 
we don't the need show. That. There's we don't 47 need viewers. To universally <laughs> love it. I'm gonna say to work, also but... canonically, like Thank you. The Flash used to always do a yearly musical episode. It was like great. there is so something yep. kind of mm-hmm. about the comic genre and then and the need for the comic genre to like Aye. feel permission to have these little one-off bottle episodes that get to go play mm-hmm. in some other genre. It feels like the very natural conclusion mm-hmm. of putting comics on television is that now you can have musical episodes. You can have the equivalent of like Kitty's bedtime story, mm-hmm. which for the listeners who aren't familiar, it's a it's an X-Men uh, issue where everyone in the X-Men is part of a time story and is dressed up in little fantasy costumes. But But there is something about like there should be a musical episode of every single comic adaptation ever. I'm. That's what I want. It's a musical and episode of every show ever. Like the, yeah. the Drew Carey show had a, had a musical episode, his sitcom. Why? No reason. They just wanted to do one. And because uh-huh. it's fun and because it's television and, and TV should be fun sometimes, <laughs> you know, and movies can be fun sometimes. So because so, the complaints that I've seen from the people who are bothering to analyze the Marvels are, well, this didn't make any sense. And it's for, like the villain's motivation doesn't make any sense. And you know what? They're right. The villain's motivation. Actually, it does make sense. She's mad because of, you know, war. Okay. War makes me mad. I mean, I'm not, that's not a spoiler. That's her entire character. She's got nothing. And frankly, that is not the best writing in the world. And it will not be nominated for best screenplay at the Oscars. That said, for a motivation of I'm evil because I'm war. It was a delightful movie. (laughs) Like it was like, it was, it was a fine movie targeted at 14 year old girls. And I, 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 I very much enjoyed myself. It, I mean, it, it, it isn't deep. It, like, she's not Killmonger. Killmonger's got a lot more going on in that film. And then, I don't even remember the character's name. Riva, I think. <laughs> like, literally, she, she is just, she's literally, generically, yeah. villain girl. Yep. Like, there's yeah. barely anything to her. Yeah. So, so I yeah, get that. pretty much. Mav, I'm glad that you mentioned Killmonger again, because I do, I got, like, a bunch of things I want to mention. Trinity, you really like, you got my brain swirling and thinking there because I'll just say, I didn't know I was going to be on this episode (laughs) until just like a little earlier this evening, you know, like, and so, so I didn't know what to expect. I think he just said the magic word soundtracks. Like I'm in cool, but like you broke a lot of this down in very, you know, in very, in a very academic and learned way, which is amazing. And I appreciate it. And I got to ask, do you compose and or play so, music? I call myself an academic practitioner. I was essentially a okay. composer, or I am a composer and sound designer and have been for 15 years in film, multimedia, so Whoa. film, television, video game, trailer, commercial. And yeah. I started teaching five years ago and fell in love with it. I mean, I, I love teaching. So that's why I'm back at in school doing a PhD. I have an MFA in film music composition. I was in Los Angeles. I was there for a while. I didn't need to be there for very long. Uh, yeah, what do you think about Los Angeles, Mike? <laughs> and uh, move. Ah, yeah, yeah, no, thank out. you. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's appealing to people whose love languages are gift giving <laughs> and words of affirmation. If, you know, you can make it to that point where you can receive those love languages in, you know, Los Angeles. But anyway, 
Yeah. After Los Angeles, I, I went back uh, and I taught in my alma mater for three years. And yeah, and I was basically persuaded to go for my PhD. So then I fell in love with research. So now I'm an academic in that way, but I'm, I'm still a practicing composer and sound designer. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you for, well, and thank you for sharing that because what that helps me, that helps for me to kind of decode a lot of where, what you were talking about was coming from, because it's obviously really knowledgeable. Like I walk around the world and bop around thinking like, yeah, I know something about soundtracks and you got to talk. And I'm like, oh my God, I know like nothing about soundtracks. I, I listen to music and I, I think the people who know me know that I, there are, there are composers whose work I, I, I love, I follow. I find distinctions with it across what they do. I'm going to get to my favorite in just like seconds. And it might be a pedestrian choice, but I don't care. I love his work. But I, I, I wanted to touch real fast on during the discussion of Black Panther. And th- so this next thing is going to be a little, a little devil's advocate like, but it's more about what I remember when I first saw Black Panther in the theater and it was, a, it was a, it was like the audience you, I think you want to see. And I actually got to talk to the audience as it was part of an introduction ahead of it. And I actually said how in comparison to when I saw Superman, the movie the first time, and I was eight at the time, I was the perfect age to see that movie. You know, I saw Superman, the movie in a theater mm-hmm. full of black folks in a black neighborhood in, in, in January, in, in I think winter or early spring of 1979, <laughs> back when movies stayed around forever. And that experience really colored the way I saw and enjoyed that movie. Now, this movie theater was full of everything. A lot of young people because a college sponsored this particular showing, but like everybody across the spectrum, which I thought was amazing. Now, I will say when we walked out. I didn't hear anybody complaining about the music, and I say that because, you know, I would think that when you're composing music for a film, just like any other aspect of a film, obviously you want learned people who are, or are, are thinking about like thinking through the narrative, but they're not academics. So like the breakdown you gave, which was, like I said, it was, this was fascinating and it will, I will have this in mind when I rewatch the movie, which I will, cause I really enjoyed the movie. Um, but I, I, I feel like the movie accomplished what it needed to accomplish, which was mostly, moving the audience in the direction that the director chose. And I really, I've listened to, to Ludwig, Ludwig Goransson's score a lot, like a lot. And I've marveled about what he accomplished in that movie and the subsequent movie, Wakanda Forever. And, you know, he, I know he and, and the director have very, they, they've worked together numerous times, not just in, on the Black Panther movies, but beyond that on Creed and and things like that. So clearly there's a working relationship that, that works. So at least for those two, those two creatives and, you know, Black Panther and Wakanda forever that it had in Ryan Coogler, it had a black director. So like the choices, the musical choices that were made, I guess the point I'm, I'm working towards were, essentially vetted by the person whose creative vision these these movies were serving. So on some, I, I have to I have to give it some credit for doing its job effectively, at least as effectively as the director wanted it to. And you know, from my observation from what the the audiences took away from the movie. Um again, because we weren't sitting there 
dissecting it in quite the same mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And then also, but you you had my brain really thinking because, <laughs> so I created my own superhero years ago, like a superhero based on myself. And my people know <laughs> about this and I'm not going to go too into it because I already think too much about myself. But like, so my character is based on me and there's a lot of other characters based on people I know in this, in this narrative. But I've, you know, and looking at my character and I've often thought, well, what if that made it to, you know, a live action interpretation? What would my character's theme be like? My favorite film composer is John Williams. Mm -hmm. I love what he does. Mm -hmm. And Superman is my favorite character. So I've probably listened to that score more than anything. I'm not just just more than any score, more than anything, (laughs) because I got it when I was nine and i've listened to it consistently i actually tape recorded it when i was nine like i put it back then i didn't have any sophisticated thing i just put a tape recorder right next to the to the record player and recorded and would listen to it and go to like i've listened to that thing a lot and i actually hear superman's name in the march you know as Look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. Look up in the sky, it's Superman. And that that's that's just how I hear it. I, like that's how well he did that job for me. And I've thought if I had my magic wand and could have anybody create my character's theme, I think I would want it to be a mashup of the Superman theme and the theme to Shaft. <laughs> So I wanted to like bring it to that because as you were talking about like music and assimilation and identity, you know, I've, I've thought about that. I, it really made me think like, well, what does that say about like a mashup like that? Like, what, how would that get read by or, or absorbed by listeners? Because really, that's if I had the ability, that's what I would be making right now is that theme. I don't it's like I could sort of hear it in my head. But I'm I'm I don't compose music. I make comic books. So, but that's you know you really got me thinking about that, like what that means and what that says about you know just all these these things that I've assimilated well, over the years and that I our think culture that, does. Um, Marcel, you're bringing up a really interesting point of assimilation isn't always necessarily like I here's I don't want to use the word like bad because it is bad, but it's essentially like. When you, when you don't see representations of yourself on screen, you do have to find things that feel still true to you with within what is available. Right. And and I think that a lot mm-hmm. of times when mm-hmm. we talk about things right. of like right. well, our definition of what should count as like black film or black music should not be purist in terms of like we can't all just think that do the right thing is our favorite movie. Right. Because sometimes it's not like sometimes there are other parts of your experience (laughs) that feel equally true in terms of it is both assimilative, but it is also our very like brickler nature as humans to be able to assemble our identities from the things that we have available. Um, that makes me think of like right. it is very unique you to want to be both Superman and Shaft and I think that it fucking sucks that you like could only pick from Superman for so long <laughs> but at the same time we shouldn't negate that being the <laughs> experience of how you formed your identity right and and actually you know I and it's 
It's okay. I have a few thoughts now. We're, we're going to start from the most recent to the least recent. So the first thing is okay. the idea of assimilation. You know, you make a good point. So what I find interesting about assimilation is that it does not necessarily have to be negative. This is something that I've been thinking about either incorporating in my work, but assimilation is the process by which someone of a embracing or indominating culture takes something of someone of a, uh, or takes something of a community of less dominant and then uses it for mm-hmm. their own gain. Oftentimes now, what is then the process by which someone of higher power takes something of someone of lower power and uses it to give the power back to them? And, you know, and I think sure. about like Nick Bertel's work in for Moonlight or if Beale Street could talk and incorporating, mm-hmm. quote unquote, black musical topics in westernized sure. scores or, or, or techniques. Right. And so. That's just something to think about, too, that assimilation does is not necessarily negative if it means exposure. Now, the issue is the exposure itself and what is being exposed. So I'm going to bring it back to Black Panther and Ludwig Göransson did a eh, it's a good, decent job. I mean, the score is great, but he did a good, decent job job in exposing Western audiences to these authentic African elements. Now, here's the story is that so Ryan Coogler and him have known each other since they were roommates at uh, what was it USC. So they knew each other. They collaborated with each other in student films. And so when they were working on Black Panther, Ludwig was like, hey, I really need to dive into what the African soundscape is so ryan ended up talking to disney and disney Mm -hmm. said all right we'll give you four weeks originally they were like nah we ain't giving you shit (laughs) no we're gonna give you four (laughs) weeks to go to africa and learn african music so ludwig goes to africa mostly southern africa in johannesburg and goes to the international library of african music elam now elam was developed by this guy, very white guy named White, named Hugh Tracy in the 1950s. Hugh Tracy went around Africa, well, quote unquote, around Africa and said, I have the soundscapes of Africa going to tribes in Central and Southern Africa, some Western, but nowhere touching the North and barely touching the East. And he said, I have all of these soundscapes that are representative of Africa. This is the African sound. Now, the process of which or by which he recorded these these tribes is they would play music and he'd say, nope, that doesn't sound that clear. doesn't sound that great. Try it again. Do it this way. So what's happening here is now we're going through a multi form of mediation, right? A multi-step phase or phasing of, of mediation where we have the tribes. The tribes were then mediated through Hugh Tracy, who then mediates these, these interpretations, his interpretations of what the African tribes sound like in this library, which then Ludwig gets exposed to and thinks this is African music. And so it's it's interesting then we also have to consider 
what does Black Panther do in mediating this idea of Africa, this representation of Africa, even though technically it's fictional and fantastical in different ways? There's a lot of genuine or authentic representations of Africa that are are kind of intertwined in the fictional, that it's hard to tell what is fictional and what is not. So thereby perpetuating Americans or, or just Westerners interpretations or perceptions of Africa, just Africa as an entity, not even the separate countries or identities within Africa. It's just Africa, right? So, and I'm going to tell you another story within with Ludwig. And this is the thing about these scores, because yeah, the average listener, or rather the average spectator listener, is not going to know about these things, but they should know about these things in order to develop a more, well, a, for lack of a better word, a more developed opinion <laughs> on on the film. So. When Ludwig went to to Johannesburg, right, he was invited by Baba Mall, who was the lead vocalist of Black Panther, to come in and and work collaborate with his studio musician friends. And so they spent a week or two recording different sounds, different phrases, and and Ludwig, with his hip hop background, was basically sampling all of these different sounds. One of them was of a Fulani flute. So a flute, a bon, bon, no, the tambin. Is it the tambin or is that the, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting my words confused, but basically it's a flute created by the Fulani tribe. And the musician's name is Amaduba. And he's just riffing on his flute. And Ludwig was like, damn, that, that's the sound of Killmonger. I need that sound. So he brings in his translator goes to Amadou Ba and says, hey, I need you to play something representative of Killmonger. And he's describing the entire character, all of his traits, his background, what fuels him, etc., etc. Now, the thing about African music and African culture is that music and dance are the same word. When uh, when children are raised within these communities, they are taught both music and dance. They are together, meaning that music is a completely embodied experience, and it is taught that way. It's it's not just embodied; it's gestural. It's their entire being. So it's like it's not to say that it's more or less than other communities. It's just that there's a respect that I have there for for African musicians because it's it's so much more. It's so much more than just entertainment. It's it's within their being. It's it's, it's communication. Exactly. Actually, even the talking drum was the means of a or is the means or was, I mean, before cell phones came and took over, but but talking drums yeah. were, were a means of communicating between uh, communities. Anyway, that's a side comment, but so anyway, so Amadou Bob was like, okay, I got you. And he ends up performing this fully immersive or embodied interpretation of Killmonger. Ludwig is like, this is it. This is fantastic. And in that improvisation, he hears this wonderful theme. And he takes it 
and he transcribes it and puts it in T'Challa's theme and eventually makes it the ancestral theme. It is the theme that ties together all of the components of the scores and the characters. It is the Black Panther theme. Now, here's where I have an issue. Amadou Ba technically wrote that theme, but he's not credited. I don't know what the royalties are like, but how come Mm -hmm. Amadou Ba is not credited, but any time John Williams' themes are used, he's always credited. So just to provide some context as to some of the issues that lie or, or, you know, that occur behind this is kind of not just what's the word, uh, not assimilation per se uh, or appropriation. Appropriation. It's at this point, it's mm-hmm. just complete exploitation. But again, I don't know what's in the contracts. I don't know if he ended up getting royalties, yeah. but because we're dealing with different government systems, he likely did not receive any royalties. Almost certainly not. So uh, this is a, uh... This is another one of those issues that sort of extends outside of just music to the way cultural and the way, and, um, and this becomes a much bigger concept. This is why this is why I love our show. Um, the idea that cultural appropriation is bad, and that's a that's a thing that people just say. It's it's it entered the popular di- discourse. People just use cultural appropriation as this thing that is defined. Almost randomly, I it's one of those terms that I I get frustrated because leftist liberal people, people, people who style themselves as such, tend to use the word sort of randomly just to mean the thing that I don't like in the exact same way as right leaning people and conservatives sometimes use the term woke to mean that like cultural appropriation is just the something bad by stealing the culture of group that I want to care about. Um, in reality, if you're going to be a cultural theorist, you're going to be me. Um, there's appropriation, there's a, a culturization, mm-hmm. there's cultural um, assimilation, there's cultural affiliation, um, in all the A words, they don't all start with A, um, <laughs> being very Jesse Jackson today. Um, there, there are lots of ways in which cultural drift happen. Cultural appropriation Good luck stopping it. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing because the right. way cultural appropriation works, appropriation is literally just taking a piece of a foreign culture and adapting it into your own. Without cultural appropriation, there is no intercultural communication. Um, the English language has loan words from other, what we call them loan words, like word croissant, mm-hmm. right? It's not an English word. It's just everybody, in, everybody who speaks English knows what a croissant, a croissant is. That's cultural appropriation, as opposed to assimilation, which is about forcing a lesser culture to take on the cultural aspects of the dominant mm-hmm. culture. So you have you might have something like when when the colonials come and take over America, and they're like, now everybody will speak English, the mother tongue, you know, <laughs> you know, or or all the other places the British did that too, or America does it too. You know, when we go to another country and we take over, like that is a destructive act. That is not the same as someone going to Japan, deciding you really like Japanese, you know, anime or martial arts or just clothing. And then, and then coming back here and saying, Hey, I went to Japan. I really like this robe. So I bought one. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, like that's actually a thing that you know is that you're allowed right. to do, and it becomes. I mean, I mean, I mean you're, anybody's allowed to do anything. It's a natural thing. It's not destructive in the way that I think people like to complain about it mm-hmm. being. This is why Eminem exists. Eminem sure. is a brilliant rapper. He, he is. And mm-hmm. a lot, and there are people who will complain, well, he's appropriating black culture. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And good for him because that allows for an appreciation of the culture and in a way that is natural to mm-hmm. him. That is different than saying Eminem will never tell you that he invented hip hop. <laughs> and if you ask Eminem any question about hip hop whatsoever, he will answer it with the words Dr. And Dre. Like that is, that is, that is what he will do. So mm-hmm. it's, so there is a, there is a difference there than there is in the destructive nature of what it is. So like I've got tattoos that are Japanese and native American and African in design that I came up with because I liked the design and I, and, and I, you know, and I meshed all these things together. Do they have anything to do with me? Not particularly. They're just the tattoos that I have. And, <laughs> and that's, and that's, I mean, they, yeah, they're I'm meaningful t- to me in that I designed these tattoos and stuff. But, but it's the same way as like, like uh, Marcel, and, uh, we, I've, I've, I've said this before. Do I know how to draw? Not really. I know how to copy Jack Kirby, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Frank Miller, like 18 million different people that I've seen draw over the course of my lifetime. And I'm like, ah, oh, I like I, I, I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to steal a little bit of the Kirby there and I'm, and I'm going to add my repertoire. Right. And that's how cultural drift actually happens. So I think that there's I, that's happening yeah. in the music. But then the problem is when it's destructive and you, you start just, oh, uh, I wrote this. Well, no, you copied it. Agreed. Somebody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like that is a that is that is theft. And that is different than just like sort of being inspired. by. Right. Oh yeah. So, I—I I mean, we've resolved nothing. I guess I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. It, it, I mean, we went all over the place. Like, really, this is not not exactly what we what what I asked you for, but it, but partly, I mean, it is and it isn't right. Like the the flaw in like sort of this kind of show is like it, like we were sort of inspired by hey come on and talk about all of your research ever yeah, right <laughs> well, we got to talk about some of it you know some of the research uh, unfortunately we didn't really get to touch on what light motifs are and uh, how exactly they affect our brains and why it's important to learn about them and know about them and how they influence how we perceive the world but you know it's well, you fine. know what Trinity I would be happy to be your dumb guy. And ask you all of those questions on a future episode. <laughs> and I will gladly answer those questions uh, in a future you know, episode. I won't even have to, I won't even have to write another, like, I'm just like, yeah, we talked about half of the stuff. So go read the offer comments from the first time and, and we'll talk about it some more. Yeah, we will definitely have you back. Uh, I do want to talk about a bunch of the stuff. Like, I mean, the, the thing that I was interested in originally was just sort of the whole concept of how how we decide that you know a certain piece of music represents a Miles Morales or a Superman or a Darth Vader or whatever. We can just do a whole nother episode. So um if you want to hear that, leave us a comment on the blog. Let us know that hey, this was cool. Talk about more of the thing that you made and switched us with. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't know. I hope this was useful to other. I, I found it fascinating. I hope it was useful to other people, to people listening. I feel like I learned so much from this episode. I no longer feel like a dumb guy a little bit about some things. So awesome. So Trinity, you will come back. Yeah, no, definitely. I w- so we'll wrap up there. Trinity, is there anything you want to plug? Anything to plug? Well, you know, I'll be. Well, maybe. I might have a little bit more availability for sound design and composition in between March and May. So if anybody's looking for any help with that or any even kind of consultation on on that front, I'm also open for guest lectures and and whatnot, talking about timbral studies, sound studies, composition, recording practices, etc., etc. You can find me at Real Scoring, as in movie reel scoring so r-e-e-l scoring you can find me on instagram facebook i also just started a business making earrings and so if you want to help me pay for my education and my endeavors on going to the conference circuit and whatnot i will be launching that etsy page within the next couple of days but that's at trinket trinity so as in trinity's trinkets yeah and it's it's all a lot of fun so, we'll, yeah. we'll link all of that in the show notes. <laughs> Wee! <laughs> Marcel, what about you? Oh, hi. I, I, I just want to talk to Trinity for like a couple more hours. I'm not going to do that now, but jeez, <laughs> I, I got like a list of soundtracks and stuff I wanted to talk with her about. But as far as where I'm at in the world, you know, here I am in good old Pittsburgh, PA. I'm working still at the Holocaust Center on our comic book publication, Hootspals, Superheroes of the Holocaust. That's available through the Holocaust Center's website, uh, HolocaustCenter, HCPGH.org. It has its own website, Hootspals, C-H-U-T-Z hyphen P-O-W.org. And I'm just generally here in Pittsburgh. Like, honestly, if you type in my name and comics in Pittsburgh, you cannot miss me. So I'm here. (laughs) Monica Marvelous. Uh, I I am on the website formerly known as X. It's currently known as X. Formerly, formerly, (laughs) let me start that over. No, 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 I'm I'm not editing that out. That's, that's, Uh, formerly known as X because I refuse to refer to it as That's such. That's true. Um, uh, as far as I'm yeah. concerned, it's again known as Twitter. Good, good, mm-hmm. good yeah. save. Good recovery. There you yeah. go. Yeah. All right. Um, at Monica Marvelous, that is L O U X, or on Instagram at Monica Marvelous, that is L O U S. Um, good luck getting me to respond to anything <laughs> until after final season. <laughs> Awesome. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Or Instagram or Facebook or Blue Sky or or Threads or probably Mastodon, but I I don't remember that I have a Mastodon. Um, You know, you're you're probably better getting me to respond on like LiveJournal or MySpace than you are to get me to respond on Mastodon. (laughs) To be honest, because I think at least with those, I'd get a notification. But, you know, all the places always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, most of those places, at Vox Podcast. It's on Twitter or... And, uh... Oh, we have a Blue Sky account now. Follow us on Blue Sky, but also Facebook. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpodcast.com, where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week, which 
I believe is going to be shopping. Shopping. Yeah. It's my favorite topic. <laughs> yes. <That's> adorable. Shopping <laughs> and, and Black Friday and toys. We're going to talk about toys a lot. It's, gonna, it's an interesting show. So if you have thoughts on that show or if you want to leave us comments on this show or any other show, then leave us comments on the blog. We like hearing from people. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or Pandora or I don't know, Google Play, wherever the hell you get podcasts from, and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes Apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, and really helps us out. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank Marcel and Trinity for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye! Bye.